The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. It's good to see you all this morning. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We heard it read by Chris this morning. And um, before we begin, I, I just wanted to mention uh, two things. I wanted to mention to you that in regard to our building update, we actually did get all the sprinkler system inside the building. It's complete and done. So praise the Lord for that. That's been a four-year uh, battle to get that done. So I, that, to me, was a huge milestone, getting that uh, sprinkler system in the building. And as, as uh, uh, Chris mentioned, join us next week. We want to pray for this church to get complete, and we want to pray over there and, and pray together at the building. So put it on your calendars and make sure to join us over there as we pray for this uh, building project. And, and, and the other thing I wanted to mention, it, it seems a little self-serving, but our home group on Wednesday nights, I would love for you to join us. Right now it's the Joneses and us, and uh, we started a book on Ecclesiastes, but we w- we're, we're meeting at the Joneses' house, uh, and it's us too, so it's a small group. You can get in early. Get in on the ground floor, as it were, with us as we start this group together. So uh, please, if you haven't joined a home group yet this year, uh, consider joining us on Wednesday nights over at the Joneses. Second Peter 1, you have Peter speaking about the sufficiency of Christ. And, and the title of the sermon is, The Bible Has All You Need for Life and Godliness. We are continuing a series that we uh, started about... I guess about eight weeks ago now, on sola scriptura, or that's the Latin for scripture alone. And we're doing this because uh, coming up here at the end of October is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, commemorating Luther when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Church, and, and that's sort of the start of the Reformation. And so what we're doing is we're going through this doctrine, this teaching of scripture alone. And um, what we mean by that, I've said it over and over, what we mean by Scripture alone is that Scripture alone has the authority, the right in our lives to command belief and action. That means the only thing that has the authority to tell us what to do and how to live is the Word of God. It holds ultimate authority over us in telling us how we're to live and what we're to believe. And it not only has the authority to do so, it has the power to do so. And this is really good news because the spirit of God uses the word of God in our lives to actually change our beliefs, change our thinking patterns and to change our actions. The spirit works in us so that we fight against sin. We don't want to, we don't want to give into it. And so the spirit empowers us when we keep in step with him to actually change our actions and obey Christ. And so this morning, we're talking about one of the most important parts of this doctrine, this teaching of sola scriptura, that is the sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture. And when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, really we're talking about the sufficiency of Jesus in our lives. Because what this gets at is something that is absolutely of importance every single day of the week. Where are we going to turn to? When we need something in our life, when we need something for godliness, are we going to turn to the word of God 
in our, for our lives and, and for becoming like Jesus, or are we going to turn to something in the world? Even something that's good in the world, it will never ultimately save us. It will never ultimately deliver us. It will never ultimately give us peace and joy. It will let us down. Have you ever had that happen in a relationship? Where you were placing all of your eggs in the basket of this relationship, as it were. And it was a good relationship. But that person, because they're not all-powerful and all-knowing, they let you down. They didn't want to. They didn't mean to. But it greatly disappointed you. Maybe it was a church leader. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was a parent. A father, a mother. And we find out that, that even people with the best of intentions that love us greatly let us down. And so they can't be our savior. They can't be our deliverer. They can't be who we run to, ultimately. Now, there's wisdom in many counselors, and so it's good to talk to all those kind of people in our lives. But what is it that is sufficient to meet all of our needs? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we just sang about. And we see Christ in the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to show us Jesus. So that's what Peter's getting at here. And think about Peter. The night Peter betrayed Jesus, the night Jesus was arrested and he was put on trial, Peter betrayed Jesus. We, we have the account in, in Matthew 26. Jesus actually prays for Peter that Peter wouldn't fall away. We see that in Luke 22. He prays that Peter wouldn't fall away permanently as a result of this. And, and then, of course, Jesus appears to Peter after he's resurrected and restores him. And, and for the three times that Peter betrayed him, three times Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Restoring him making him useful and fruitful in, in the kingdom. And, and one of the things that keeps us from chasing after the word of God and, and finding our sufficiency in the word of God is the enemies of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are like two dogs that constantly chase at our heels, yelping and yapping at us, and they are not easy to outrun. Haven't you found that to be true? The minute you start finding yourself getting into ministry and serving and being fruitful for the Lord, it's as if Satan brings up your past and says, oh, you're guilty of that. If people really knew who you were and how you were, they would never let you participate in the life of the church. So why don't you just go ahead and give up and don't participate in the life of the church because guilt and shame are just going to overwhelm you. And see, Peter understood that well. Peter was filled with guilt and shame because of his denial of Jesus. And yet here we hear Peter speaking after he's had years of fruitful ministry. He speaks to the sufficiency of Christ. He speaks to the sufficiency of the word of God. And he says, guess what? This word, it contains everything we need for life, for godliness, for salvation, and for spiritual warfare. And so if we want to defeat the enemies of guilt and shame, we have to run to the word and find our sufficiency in the word of God, not even our sufficiency in ourselves. Well, here in 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 4, we see the Father's gifts that come to us. The knowledge of these gifts come to us through the word of God. Verses 1 and 2 is grace and peace. 
He says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, the Father, that is, and Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace, and it comes through the Scriptures. This is where we get the knowledge of God the Father and Jesus our Lord. So if we want to grow in godliness, if we want to gain eternal life, we have to grasp what God the Father has for us in His Son. J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, writes this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God, John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Packer goes on to say, What of all states God ever sees man in gives him the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Once you become aware that the main business you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Packer concludes, this is true. We get grace and peace through, we, we understand grace and peace through the knowledge of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. This is how we know the gospel. It comes to us, the Father so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The knowledge of that comes through the word of God that we've been given about Jesus, his person, his work, the good news that he came to free us from our sin to finish the work and to say, it's finished. And so we get grace and peace. Verse three, we get everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. That is piety, biblical spirituality, a holy life, godliness. And so this comes through the Father's divine power that's been granted to us, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and it comes through the knowledge, there's that word again, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Where do we get this knowledge? We get it from the word of God. You see, the sufficiency of scripture, it's rooted in the sufficiency of Christ. The reason we can know the father who called us is because we are in his son. That's what Jesus says. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the father, he tells Philip in John 17. If you've been united to Christ, you receive a knowledge of God the Father. You have intimate knowledge of him so that you now can call him Father. You now have a new relationship, a new standing. You're part of his family. You've been sealed with his Holy Spirit. And so everything you need for life and godliness, it's been given to us by the Father through Christ and it's through a knowledge of the Father who called us into his own glory and excellence. And then in verse 4 he says, this is called these great and precious promises by which the Father, he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that you would become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. What are these promises? Well, they cover everything. Promises of Christ's return, the judgment, the restoration of all things, chapter 3 says. And often today, people want to claim they have a relationship with God the Father, and at the same time, they abandon the words of the Bible. 
You see, and they, what they end up doing is they end up making a God in their own image, a God in their own making. One of the very common ones in our culture is to say, well, God is love, First John tells us, so therefore that's all God is. And so you could switch it around and say, love is God. And all you need is love, like the great theologians, the Beatles. Well, that's partly true, but that is not only what God is. He's not only love. He's perfect love, but He's perfectly holy and righteous. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And His perfect love and His perfect holiness work together to give us the good news of the gospel. Because he can't sweep sin under the rug. He can't just simply say, well, I forgive you. That's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to let you into my presence forever, even though you rebel against me. No, what he had to do is he had to pour out his wrath upon his son so that you could be drawn near. And that's the good news of the gospel. Well, these promises... These promises don't only deal with the end, they deal with today. Jesus is our deliverer and our savior today. Everything we need for life today, for godliness today, is given to us through a knowledge of God the Father in the scriptures. I love in Pilgrim's Progress, which is one of the classics uh, of Christian literature, John Bunyan, it's one of my favorite scenes, he pictures the two pilgrims, Christian and Hopeful, and they are inside a dungeon at one time. And the dungeon is inside of Doubting Castle. And it's owned, the castle, Doubting Castle, is owned by Giant Despair. Now remember, it's an allegory. So this is really easy to picture. I am full of doubts. It's like I'm bound up in a dungeon, and the owner of the dungeon is Giant Despair. I'm in the midst of great depression and despair. And because of that, I'm filled with doubts. And it's imprisoned me and shackled me and bound me up. This is what Bunyan's writing about in the 17th century. And Bunyan writes this. Christian says to Hopeful, this is after they've been languishing there for quite a while. What a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might walk free on the highway to glory. And what's his answer? Christian took the key of promise. And he pushed it into the lock of the dungeon door and the bolt fell back and the door came open and they walked out into the castle. And then they went to the door leading to the castle yard and the key opened that door also. And now they came to the great iron gate leading outside and the lock to the gate was exceedingly difficult, yet they unlocked it and pushed open the gate to make their escape. But the gate made such a creaking sound that it woke the giant who jumped out of bed to pursue his prisoners. And then he was seized by one of his fits and lost the use of his limbs. And the prisoners ran to the king's highway where they were safely beyond giant despair's jurisdiction. He says here, we've been granted these great and precious promises. And so often the Christian life is portrayed as, yes, we have this great promise that we're going to be with God forever in heaven. And there's going to be no more sin and no more sorrow and no more death. And that's a glorious thought, but we also have a Savior who delivers us today, who gives us everything we need for life today, godliness today, to say no to what he says in verse 4. All of the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. And so we can say no to it because we have these great promises that Christ is with us and he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us and we have the Spirit of God inside of us who is teaching us to walk according to Christ And all of this we receive in the word of God. And he then says we can even become partakers, fellowshippers 
in the divine nature. Now that doesn't mean we're going to be gods. That's not what he's talking about here. Rather, what he means is that we're going to be made perfect morally. We're going to share in the righteousness and holiness of God. We're going to see the image of God fully restored in us, and we're going to participate in all of the excellencies and immortality of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the um, theologians over the centuries have sometimes called it the beatific vision, this idea of this beautiful vision that fills our gaze that we're going to be like him when we see him, 1 John 3. We're going to become like Jesus. We, we already are a new creation. We've already experienced new life, but it's not yet fully been revealed to us what it's going to be like. But because of the promises in the word of God, because of these great precious promises, we can actually become like Jesus. We can partake in the moral excellencies of God the Father and escape the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. We can be delivered from the corruption in the world. That is good news because this world loves to get its hooks into us. Uh, You know, I have crabgrass in my front yard. I think everybody out here does. I think you can all relate to this. That stuff is from the devil. Like, you know, I appreciate that Caltrans put it on the levees in order to keep erosion from happening so we don't get flooded back in the 60s or whatever. But now I got to fight it tooth and nail. I put down some nice bark. It looked great for about one week. And then the crabgrass came through. And it's like corruption, right? It's corrupted my easement and the bark. And I just want to take a blowtorch to it and have scorched earth policy on my easement. This is what happens with sin, the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. It starts affecting us and it starts springing up like weeds, And how do we stamp it out? Well, according to Peter here, his divine power in the word of God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's through a knowledge of God the Father. It's by understanding these great and precious promises so that we would become like Jesus and escape the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. And so he goes on to say what our response is to this in verses five to seven. Because of all of these gifts the Father has given through Christ... Now our response in verses 5 through 7 are these seven fruits of faith. They're like rungs on a ladder. They're like steps going up a stairway. And he says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. He says, this is supplementing your faith. It's not replacing your faith. It's not what makes you acceptable to God. Your faith is what's united you to Christ. But supplementing your faith, you have first virtue, living a life worthy of praise, doing the right thing regardless of the outcome, having a a life of integrity. Virtue is a lost thing in our society. And And here Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then virtue were to supplement with knowledge, not just knowing about God, but knowing God. There's a a classic story told of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And the story goes that there was a group of people who had gathered and in their midst, there was a famous actor and they were at a dinner party. And so the actor, they, they begged the actor, would you read for us Psalm 23? 
And so then the actor gets up and he gets his acting voice on and he gets his stage presence and he reads Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And everybody applauds and they just can't believe what an amazing, eloquent display it is of Psalm 23. Well, also in the audience, there's a pastor. And then the pastor gets up to read Psalm 23 after the actor. And he reads it and he doesn't have the eloquence of the actor but he reads, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack no good thing. And then the people wept. And then they say, well, what's the difference? They ask the actor and the actor says to the pastor, I know the Psalm, but you know, the shepherd, right? It's not just knowledge about God that we need to supplement to our faith. It's actually knowing God, having relationship with him, drawing near to him. And that's not something you can fake. That's not something that you could just say on the externals, boy, as long as everybody, as long as I I know a bunch of facts about God, I know a lot of doctrine, I know a lot of the Bible, that's good enough. Jesus condemned the Pharisees in the harshest terms because with their lips they honored God, but their hearts were far from him. And so he says, knowledge, we need to know God, self-control. We can't use our Christian freedom for sin. We have to exercise self-control and say no to our desires, steadfastness, he says, strength and longevity. It's kind of like getting a black belt in jujitsu. It doesn't happen overnight. In fact, uh, the famous saying that everybody knows is a black belt's a white belt that doesn't give up and just keeps going at it. This is the idea of steadfastness. Christian maturity is not falling down. It's, it's getting back up after you fall. It's the, the time between your sin and your repentance getting shorter and shorter. That's Christian maturity. It's not that you won't ever sin again because until Jesus comes back or until we go to be with him, we're gonna battle sin in our lives. But how long does it take you to repent and get back up? If that time between your sin and your repentance gets shorter and shorter and shorter, you're maturing in Christ. You're experiencing steadfastness, endurance. And then he says godliness. This is the same as good deeds, You know what it looks like? It looks like submission to authority, he says in chapter 2. A willingness to suffer in chapter 2. It looks like serving your brothers and sisters in Christ in chapter 4. Which is why he goes into brotherly affection. It's, It's literally where Philadelphia comes from. Peter experienced this when Jesus restored him in John 21. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Brotherly affection for Peter. And then he says, supplement that with agape with sacrificial love of God and love for others, and it's rooted for God's love for us in Christ. And so all of this, all of these virtues, he says in verse 7, going into verse 8, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the goal. This is, he says, this is what we want to be is we want to be effective. We want to be fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to practice these virtues and supplement our faith with these spiritual disciplines, with this spiritual exercise of these virtues so that we will be effective, so that we'll be fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we want to run in such a way to gain the prize, to use a different analogy. We want to run the race as if to win it. Philippians 2, we actually want to work out what God has already worked into us. 
We want to use our spiritual muscles, as it were, to produce this in us by the grace of God so that we would supplement our faith and we would become like Jesus. If Peter could preach to us today, I think he'd say something like this out of this passage. I know you've fallen. I know you failed Jesus. So did I. I've also experienced those unwanted companions of guilt and shame. They were at my heels, but there's hope. There's grace. So get on your feet and get back in the race. Ascend the path to heaven, as it were, to become partakers of the divine nature. It's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Run the race with endurance. Well, what does the Father give us as a reward for this? Verses 8 to 11, he gives us, verse 8 and 9, active and fruitful fruitfulness and effectiveness in the knowledge of Christ. And now this doesn't happen in a flash. It never finishes in this life, but it does happen. We bear fruit. We are effective. God uses us. If he didn't need us, he'd take us home. Verse 10, he gives us assurance of our election and our calling. He says in verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So this actually gives us assurance of our salvation, that we've been chosen by the Father, that we've been called by him, we've been brought out of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of his beloved Son. This idea of calling is a royal summons. It's as if you were summoned by the king himself. And the idea of election is that it's his sovereign choice. And Ephesians 1 says it's rooted in his love that's eternal. In eternity past, before the foundation of the earth, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters of God. What a glorious thought. And so we need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And when we bear fruit in keeping with repentance, then we'll have assurance that we are children of God. Do you lack assurance here this morning? Do you fear that you've been cast out of the kingdom? That maybe God is just, if you've sinned one too many times and that's enough and he's going to give you the left foot of fellowship. He's going to boot you out. There's great hope in Christ. Our salvation is not dependent upon these virtues. Our salvation is rooted in our faith. That's why he said back in verse five, supplement your faith with these things. In fact, he goes on to say um, that this is, well, he said it in verse eight. We, if we have a knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're going to be effective and fruitful. And if we practice these things in verse 10, because of the knowledge of Christ, because we've been united to him and we have a knowledge of the Father, we'll never fall. And then he says in verse 12, I want to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and you're already established in the truth that you have. Peter's not telling them, boy, you better check yourself. And if you don't see these things, you better just, you know, believe that you're not a Christian. He says, no, I know you know these things. I know you've been established in these things. I want you to live out of who you already are in Christ. And where you find these realities is in the word of God. And he says, this provides abundant entrance into the kingdom of Christ. Verse 11, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, why is this? 
As I was saying in verse 12, it's, it's living out of who we are in Christ. It's rooted in the Father's sufficient word about his sufficient Son. So verses 12 to 15 is basically telling us to remember the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, I intend to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Three times he says, remember, remind, recall. What are these things he's talking about? He's talking about the finished work of Jesus, who Jesus is, the Son of God, and what he did. He came to die in our place for sin. And this word remember is a wonderful word in the New Testament. It's the foundation of all of our worship. It's why we gather at the table. As often as we do this, this table, this communion, we do it in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this act today of taking the bread and the cup and participating in the Lord's table, it is practicing exactly what Peter wanted us to do, to remember these things. In the Old Testament, one of the things they used were these stones of remembrance. These stones that were placed all over the place in Israel. Sometimes in the river, sometimes on a pathway. Sometimes there would be little altars that were placed at a certain spot like Bethel that were stones of remembrance. And what they were to remember is that Yahweh was their Ebenezer, their stone of help. The one who had brought them that far. The one who had always been with them and who had never forsaken him and brought them through the river or brought them up to Bethel and met him there like Jacob did. And these stones were to be reminders. This is how far the Lord has brought me and he's been with me and he's never forsaken me and so I can trust him in the future. Now we don't have those stones here in Brentwood. We might have figurative stones in our life, those events that the Lord brought us through. I have those in my life that the Lord was faithful to bring me through. And I can look back to those things, but what we do have, every single one of us, is we have this cup and this bread that we take of regularly to remind us, to be our remembrance, that the one who is ultimately our stone of help is the Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And we've been founded and built upon him. Peter goes on to say, we want to remember this, and he says, here's why we want to remember this. This is why Christ is sufficient, verses 16 to 18. Peter says, this is not a myth. This isn't a story. This isn't wishful thinking. Our culture tells us that Christianity is just a crutch for weak-minded people who need help in this world and aren't strong enough to handle this world on their own. But that's not true. Peter here says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, verse 16, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, I saw him. I lived with him for three years. I saw his power. I saw him come from the Father. I saw his majesty. I saw all of his glory. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 17, When Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven because we were with him on the holy mountain. 
That Mount of Transfiguration when Peter and James and John saw the unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus on the mountain. And they were so excited, they wanted to just build houses and live there forever. We would too. Peter says, I was an eyewitness of that glory. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. It's not just a pipe dream. You can trust your whole life upon this. It is ultimate reality. The Lord Jesus came in power and glory and he died in our place for our sin so that we could be forgiven. We could be set free. We could have life abundantly. We could stop living for ourselves and we can live for the one who made us. And he says, not only that, verses 19 to 21, we were given the word of God to be a permanent testimony to this. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter says, we have the word of God and it is the all-sufficient means of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ who is our all-sufficient Savior. In fact, he says, it's more certain, it's more sure here in my translation, more fully confirmed than even Peter's eyewitness testimony. Someone didn't imagine it. It's not Tolkien's Middle Earth, as great as that is. Someone didn't make this up. This is the most sure, certain thing in the world, the Word of God, which is an eyewitness to the person and work of Jesus. And think about what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, I'm a reliable witness. I was with him on the mountain. I saw his glory. I saw his majesty. I was there. I'm telling you it's true. But then he goes on to say, guess what? You have the word of God that's even more sure than my eyewitness testimony. It's more sure. It's more certain. Why can you trust this? Because when scripture speaks, God speaks. In fact, he's going to go on to say why you can trust it. He says, Well, before he says that, he says, you would do well to pay attention to the word of God. Verse 19, you do well to pay attention to it like a lamp shining in a dark place. All of you parents of kids who have Legos understand this. A lamp shining in a dark place is a good thing because Legos are sharp and they hurt when you step on them and you need some sort of light to navigate in the darkness of your house so that you don't end up crippled permanently. Here he says, you would do well to pay attention to the word of God like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word morning star, uh, you would recognize it phosphorus. We think of it as that, that substance that gives light in uh, glow sticks, right? I think I might be wrong. I'm not a scientist. But it means light bringer, phosphorus, the one who brings light. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of God who will with the dawning of the new creation bring light. And all of God's people will live in his light and we will be unspoiled, unsullied by sin or pain or rejection or sadness forever. And so he says, guess what? Verse 20 The way, the reason you can trust this word of God, the reason it's sufficient is because it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation. Know this first of all. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter didn't just think it up. Rather, verse 21, 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here Peter uses this word carried. It's a familiar term to him as a fisherman of a ship being blown by the wind as the wind fills its sails. And he says the reason why you can trust the word of God is it's not just Peter's word. It's the Spirit's word. When scripture speaks, God speaks. The Spirit carried these men of God along to give us the word of God. So that every word is true. So that it's trustworthy. So that it's sufficient for everything you need for life and godliness. This is, this is what we hope in. This is what we put our trust in. Is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's going to be sufficient to save and deliver us. And where we learn about that is in the word of God. And the reason we want to be in the word of God is because every day as we face something, we need to learn how to apply the finished work of Christ to what we're facing. So how do I love my spouse? How do I love my wife? Well, I look to the cross. Christ loved us, the church, so much that he laid down his life for us when we were enemies. And so in Ephesians 5, when... Paul tells the Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We look to the sufficiency of Christ and say, I can love my wife because Christ loved me at my worst. I can love my wife no matter what state she's in, no matter what condition she's in. In the same way, in that same passage, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Well, wives, how can you submit to your husbands when they're sinners and and failures and maybe not even good leaders? Because you look to the cross and you look to the Lord Jesus who said to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. The one who was the ultimate picture of what godly submission looks like. It's not weakness. It's not inferiority. It's great strength. It's great courage. It's great hope in the plans and promises of the one who's seated on the throne. And so you can submit to your husband as unto the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to the sufficiency of the cross. And then guess what happens to our marriages? They reflect the gospel to the world. And people look at our marriages and say, what's different about your marriage? What's the secret to your marriage? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all it is. It's his finished work. He's sufficient to give us a godly marriage. We could go down the line. He's sufficient to give us godly wisdom in parenting. He's sufficient to give us godly wisdom in all our relationships, in our careers, in our future, in our singleness, in our loneliness, in our depression, in our guilt, and in our shame, and in our fears. And in our weaknesses, he is sufficient to deliver us and give us everything we need for life and godliness. It's why Paul says in Galatians 6 that we glory in the cross of Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Because when we understand this, when we look to the word of God, we see that everything we have comes from him. Everything that we are comes from him. At my brother-in-law's funeral... Uh, Big Daddy Weave song, My Story. This, I, I couldn't help but think about it. Here's the words of this song. They say, if I told you my story, you would hear of hope that wouldn't let go. If I told you my story, you would hear of love that never gave up. If I told you my story, you would hear of life. But it wasn't mine. If I should speak, then let it be of the grace that's greater than all my sin. 
of when justice was served and where mercy wins of the kindness of Jesus that draws me in. To tell you my story is to tell of him, to tell of Christ. And it goes on, verse 2, if I told you my story, you would hear victory over the enemy. If I told you my story, you would hear freedom that was won for me. If I told you my story, you would hear life overcome the grave. So if I should speak, then let it be of the grace that's greater than all my sin. Of when justice was served and when mercy wins. Of the kindness of Jesus that draws me in to tell my story is to tell of him. That's what we want the theme of our life to be. Where is our boast? Our boast is in the cross. We glory in the cross because it has all we need for life and godliness. Think about this. Paul didn't say in Galatians 6, we glory in the incarnation of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. We do. He didn't say we glory in the life of Christ, which is our perfect example. He glories in the part of the gospel that's most attacked by enemies and most mocked by the world. He glories in the cross. He glories in the cross Because the cross is where Christ redeemed us from the curse of sin and completed the work so that we can say it's finished because Jesus said it's finished. It's when we come to this table and we take it. We know that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us and he paid it all and it's done. And so we can live with confidence. We can get up in the morning and know that the day is not dependent upon me because Christ is the one who's seated at the throne. He's the one who finished the work. I can put all my hope and trust in him. And I can walk with him by the spirit of God and I can become more like him. And maybe I could be fruitful and effective today for the kingdom, be used by him. Isn't that our hope and our desire May we rest in the sufficiency of the word of God. May we run to the word because in it we see the sufficiency of our Savior. That is my prayer for you today. Father, thank you for your word and this truth and this reality that of everything that we have in Christ. Thank you that you've given us your word as a permanent testimony to this. That we can go to it anytime we want. We have access to your words, Father, about your Son, And we can see how it applies to our life so that we can have everything we need for life and godliness. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for running to other words, other wisdom, other people, other saviors that will never save and will never deliver. I pray for my brothers and my sisters that they would look at your word anew, that they, they would look at it with new eyes today, that they would see it not merely as just a book that they ought to get into because it's a good idea, but that this is where they're going to find everything they need for life and godliness. Do this work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.